Scripture reading for this morning comes from two different sections at the end of John. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, and then John chapter 21, verses 24 through 25. So if you would like to take a Bible from the pew in front of you and open it, uh, or maybe you brought your own Bible, the one that you read day in and day out, uh, by God's grace, you can open that up to John. We will read, starting in John 20, verses 33, 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John 21, verses 24 through 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one after the other, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Love that verse. Love that John closes his gospel with that verse. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it's felt like a long time coming. But, uh, been anticipating getting into the Gospel of John. Um, but we finally made it. Uh, by God's grace, your patience and uh, my stumblings, we're here. And, uh, and I'm really excited, very excited to get into this book together and uh, see what the Lord has to say to us through this book. Um, we'll, get, we'll get into that in a moment. Would you, uh, maybe as you're settling, I uh, just want to bear with me for a second. I want to thank everyone uh, for allowing our family to not only be gone on vacation, but also giving me three weeks out of the pulpit to prepare to enter into the Gospel of John a little bit more fully. Um, I believe that the Lord blessed my, my uh, time of preparation. We'll, we'll see if I really, really got it or not. Uh, but uh, by God's grace, this will be a sweet time. So uh, thank you, Grant. Thank you, Lauren. And uh, thank you, Nick, Matei, wherever you are. If you're not here, well, bless God for Nick. And I uh, hope everything's all right. Um, also, today... As we come to the table at the end of the message, we're going to do things a little differently. Um, there's going to be a time at the end of the sermon just for reflection, for you to think about what we've looked at in the sermon and with an aim to preparing your heart to celebrate at the Lord's table together with Christ's people. So James is going to play instrumentally, uh, instrumentally just for a little while uh, while we pray, we meditate, we think upon what we've heard, and then prepare to come and worship Christ here at the table together. Uh, don't be thrown off by that. It may feel a little different, but I think it'll serve us well uh, just to focus our minds and slow down that transition from pulpit to table and uh, allow us to, to engage more fully in a wholehearted worship. So, so be ready for that. So with that said, would you uh, pray with me, and we will get into introducing John. 
Father, as I've read recently, uh, prayer is not merely about communing with you and enjoying you, though that's a major part of it. It's also about coming before you and asking you to do things or to change the status quo, to, to change what seems to be the norm around us and to bring that into greater conformity to your perfect and wonderful will revealed to us in your word. Father, you've, through your Son, taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we don't see that prayer being realized as fully as we want it to be realized in this world right now. There's so many things going on, Lord, around the globe, not just in one part or the other, but there's so much uh, tumult that it can feel chaotic. It can feel like everything's spinning out of control. Lord, we know that you reign as sovereign king over it all, and you are working all things to the end, that Christ would be exalted in it and through it and over it all. And Father, we thank you for that, but we come before you now in prayer asking for this request to be answered, that you would make the name of Jesus Christ and the glory of Christ more fully manifest in this world. God, would you make your church more fully consumed by a vision of Christ and his glory, more filled with a love and a zeal to serve him and to worship him, Lord, and let that witness of your church impact this world for the, for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of Christ's name. Lord, we, we long for that to be revealed, that to be manifested, that to be fulfilled, that day when Christ comes in all the glory of the Father and with the holy angels and judges the world in righteousness and delivers your people forever. Lord, we long for that day. Until then, we pray, God, that you would continue renewing our inner beings by your Spirit so that Christ may dwell more fully in our hearts through faith. God, we want that to be the, the end of our time in the Gospel of John, and we pray that you would, you would work in us unto that end. Lord, may Christ be bigger in our minds and in our hearts than he is now as we're beginning this study. Lord, be with us, guard and protect us from any, any error, anything misspoken. Let your truth sink deeply down into our hearts and minds, and may you shape us and conform us more fully to the image of your Son. Father, we pray in Jesus' name and for your eternal glory through us. Amen. 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 Who jumped the gun there? Amen. Are you guys excited to get into John? I'm excited to get into John. I am. I, um, John has always been a very dear gospel to me, and I think that that's probably the case for, for most of us, right? Where we would say John's not only our favorite gospel account, but it's also maybe our favorite book in the Bible, right? Because the Lord has ministered to us so powerfully through it. Well, today, obviously, we're beginning a new series, Walking Through the Gospel of John, and the title of that series is, very creatively, The Gospel of John, uh, Beholding the Son. 
Now that tagline, Beholding the Sun, that really is the main purpose of this book. Uh, John wrote this book to help sinners like us who did not personally witness or see the glory of Christ with our own eyes. He wrote this book, in a sense, to thrust us into a direct confrontation with Christ as he revealed his glory in this world. So, having written it for that purpose, it was written so that through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit and through what has been contained or written in this book, we would behold Jesus, the Son of God, and we would believe in him. And we're going to see that more clearly in time as we move through the gospel. Now, for today, our goal is simple. We are seeking just to introduce ourselves to the gospel of John, which is why we're not starting at John chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. So today, what we're going to be doing is looking briefly at the author of this gospel. We're going to be looking at the structure of the gospel. And then finally, we're going to be looking at the purpose of the gospel. And uh, as we walk through our time this morning, it's my hope that we'll all come away grasping more fully the general scope of what the Gospel of John is really presenting to us, right? We're, we're aiming today for like that 30,000 foot uh, overview of the lay of the land in the Gospel of John. We want to we get the main message and see how that main message is being carried throughout the entirety of the book. That's going to help us as we come in. So, so let, me, let me change that analogy. What we're doing today is we're trying to look at the whole forest, okay? So that as we enter into that forest and we start looking at those trees, and you guys know how prone I am to look at the leaves and the limbs, as we start doing that, you have this broad picture in mind of what the gospel is really driving at. And you can set whatever we're looking at in any particular Sunday within its broader context and understand the emphasis that John's driving at. Okay? So that's our aim for today. I really want this to sink down in your hearts. I want you to get and grasp this big picture of what John wants us to see about the glory of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to start simply by looking at the author briefly. And we're not going to go into all the life of the author. I just want to introduce the fact that we know who wrote this gospel. And uh, that may not be as an important, important of an issue to, to all of us who don't spend all the time studying the books that are coming out on the Gospel of John and the New Testament, but I'll tell you that there is an increasing amount of scholarship that is trickling down into the pulpits of our land that is creating all kinds of confusion and doubt concerning who wrote this Gospel and whether or not it can be believed. So what I want to do today is start by looking at the fact that John did indeed write this Gospel. Now I jumped the gun here. This is what happens when you don't go line upon line through your notes. <clears throat> Let me start over. Who wrote the Gospel of John? John. Now, as I said, that may, seem overly, may not seem overly relevant to many of us because we just take the title of the book for granted. As if the Apostle John wrote this Gospel and he tagged a title on top of it and sent it out. And it's always been that way for the church that it was delivered to the first recipients of this book with that title, The Gospel of John. Right? Well, that's actually not the case. John did not write his name at the top of the letter or even at the end of the letter and, uh, or this book and, and say, I am the one who wrote this book. In fact, there's not anywhere in the book itself that lists the name of the author specifically. 
Now, that's not to be unexpected, I guess. Uh, we, we should expect that, especially in the gospel accounts, because the gospels weren't written to any particular person or any particular group of people, uh, like the epistles are, where Paul says, you know, Paul, Silas, Timothy, to the believers at Corinth, or to the church at Ephesus, or Galatia, or whatever. That's not the purpose for which the gospels were written. They were written to be disseminated broadly, right? To be uh, sent about, sent abroad throughout the entire world so that every sinner in this world would read the account of Jesus Christ revealed in the gospel. So it's not to be unexpected. But um, the problem that many scholars today deal with is the fact that this book is formally anonymous. We don't know exactly who wrote it. Now that's important because as it says in John 21, 24, the person who wrote this book stresses the fact that we can know that it's true merely because we know who wrote it. You see the connection there? We know that his testimony is true. This is the disciple who's testifying to these things. So there's a direct connection between knowing the veracity of this account of Jesus Christ, that direct connection, knowing its truthfulness, to knowing its author. Now the question is, how can we know that this author's witness is true if we don't even know who the author is? Now for centuries, believers were able to take things like this for granted. And I want you to hear what I'm saying right now. For centuries, believers could th take things like this for granted. You could just assume and operate on the assumption, well, the, it says right here in my English Bible printed in 2018 that this is the Gospel of John. And therefore, everybody knows that this is the Gospel written by John and there's no discrepancy about it. There's no problems with it. There are no issues. Well, for centuries, the church could operate like that. But guys, we cannot operate like that anymore. The world is increasingly questioning the truthfulness of the claims that are in this book. And if you and I don't know how to argue against those claims, against those questions and those doubts that are raised by the world, we're really not going to have much to say as far as a witness is concerned to them. And so, church history would tell us that the Apostle John wrote this gospel somewhere around A.D. 85, towards the end of his life, probably before the account of Revelation was written, the Apocalypse, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and for, as I said, for centuries that was just assumed, but in a world of doubt and skepticism, we can't assume that anymore. So number one, the reason why it's important for us to see that John actually did write this book is, first of all, to reassure our hearts within this atmosphere of doubt that what is contained here really is true. It's an account of someone who was an eyewitness and was actually telling us exactly what happened in the life of Christ. But then secondly, if we're going to have a robust and a confident witness to a world that is increasingly doubtful of the truths about Jesus declared in this book, then we need to be able to answer some of the basic questions that the world is asking, such as, who is the one who is telling us these things in the Gospel of John? You follow that? Okay. All right, well, we're going to be brief here, hopefully, but I don't want to drown you out in that wonderful world of scholarship and argumentation and all that. It's really not fun to read most of the works that are, that are coming out uh, concerning the Word today. 
But even though we do not have a specific name within this book, the Holy Spirit has given us enough evidence in Scripture to discern who wrote it. Now, as we're going to see, there are many times in this book when the author identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, if we simply look at the information that is presented to us in those different areas where that phrase occurs, then we can reason from that information relatively uh, surely to the author, to identify the author who is actually writing it. And so the first time that this phrase appears is in John 13, 23. This is uh, where the disciple whom Jesus loved is shown to be with Christ and the other disciples at the Last Supper. Now that's important, understanding that this is at the Last Supper, because Luke twenty-two fourteen tells us that the only people who were with Jesus at the Last Supper were the 12 apostles. And so what we know from that is that the disciple whom Jesus loved, writing this account of Jesus' life and ministry, is obviously one of those 12 apostles, okay? Because he's with Jesus at the Last Supper. Now, there's a, there's a really important clue about the specific apostle that is revealed to us in this verse. This disciple whom Jesus loved is described as doing what? What is he doing? He's reclining where? He's reclining on Jesus' bosom. He's resting back on Christ's chest. Right? Now, not all the apostles are described that way. Not all those who were at the Last Supper are presented as leaning back on Jesus, but this one is. What does that tell us about the relationship that this apostle had with our Lord? It tells us it was pretty intimate. Right? There was a close association and connection that existed between Christ and this disciple. Now, adding to that, it was the disciple whom Jesus loved to whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother. You see that in John 19, verses 26 through 27, that when Jesus, hanging on the cross, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now, obviously then, this is not some obscure disciple, but one who, has, one who was so entrusted or so trusted by our Lord Jesus that on the cross he entrusted the care of his widowed mother into his hands. And you got to see the significance of that. Jesus had other brothers. Mary had given birth to other sons, right? And yet Jesus entrusts the care of his widowed mother to this disciple whom he loved. All of that paints this picture that this disciple whom Jesus loved was very intimate with our Lord and very trusted by him. Now, among the 12 disciples that had this kind of intimate friendship with Christ, we can only list three. We've got Peter. Who else? James and John. Peter, James, and John. Those who are often referred to as the inner circle of the, of the disciples of our Lord. Those who were trusted with, by Christ with, a, with a, an unveiling of his glory that was unique to their experience. Not all of the apostles experienced everything that Peter, James, and John experienced. For example, it was only Peter, James, and John who were brought up on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured into his glory. 
when he let his glory outshine the state of his humility, right? It was Peter, James, and John who were there. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, when Jesus went away to pray alone, so he brought the disciples into the garden, and then Jesus goes away from them to pray alone, he brings three of the disciples with him. Who are they? It's Peter and the sons of Zebedee, right? James and John. So you see in this that there's this intimate connection between Jesus and these three apostles that did not exist in the other apostles. It's not to say that Jesus didn't love the other apostles. It's not to say that Jesus wasn't intimate with the other apostles, that they didn't have a close friendship. But it is to say that these three had a very unique relationship with Christ that the others did not experience. Now from that, if we identify these three as having that kind of intimate relationship with Christ, we can rule out Peter as being the one who, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we can do that simply because within the Gospel of John, we find Peter presented with the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? So they are two separate disciples. For example, in John 20 verses, 21, verse 20, the disciple whom Jesus loved was following Peter and Jesus as they were talking in Christ's post-resurrection interaction with Peter. So obviously from that, we can rule out Peter as the candidate for the disciple whom Jesus loved. So now we're down to James and John. Which one do you think is the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Well, we have a, a really important clue that helps us see that that disciple was not James. Uh, we find that clue in chapter 21, verses 20 through 23. Specifically, verse 23, where the disciple whom Jesus loved is described as, by the other apostles as being the one who would not die, Right? That he would, he would continue to live on until Christ returned in his glory. Now, the author makes very clear that that's not what Jesus said. <laughs> Jesus simply said, if I want him to remain until I come again, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. Stop worrying about what I'm doing in everyone else's life, and you focus on following after me and being concerned about what I'm doing in your life, right? We're always busybodies. We're all trying to get in each other's business. And Jesus says, no, you stop that. You're to focus on one thing, Peter. Focus on me and focus on following me. So the, the author makes clear that's not what Jesus said. However, the rumor did continue to spread. So what that tells us is that this disciple whom Jesus loved had to have lived the kind of life or at least the longevity of life enough to give credence to that rumor, right? Now, we know it wasn't James who lived long enough to give credence to a rumor like that because... James was the first apostle who was martyred, right? In Acts 12, verses 1 through 2, we see that he was put to death as a, as a sign of favor, really, to the Jews uh, by Herod the king. And so, if it's not Peter and it's not James, then the only candidate left is John. And from this evidence, actually, it's, this is the way that the early church reasoned unto identifying the author of this book. Clement of Alexandria, for example, who lived from 150 to 215, A.D. 150 to 215, he wrote that John, last of all, composed a spiritual gospel. And within that, you can even see the recognition that this gospel is unique and it's different than the other gospel accounts, but it's still identified as having been written by John. And then you have uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, living from 130 to about 200, A.D. 200. Now, he was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. 
So he's third generation disciple from the Apostle John. Is that right? Second generation. Yeah, there we go. I'm thinking John's one, Polycarp's two, Irenaeus is third, but that's not right. So anyway, second generation from John. He wrote that John, the disciple of the Lord, who leaned back on his breast, published the gospel while he was a resident at Ephesus in Asia, right? So that's what church history passes down to us. And uh, this means that in the gospel of John, we have an eyewitness testimony from one who was not only a disciple of our Lord, but one who was very intimately associated with our Lord, one who was given the privilege of seeing aspects of Christ's glory that not everyone was given. Matthew wasn't given this, right? Luke wasn't given this. He wasn't one of the apostles. Mark wasn't given this. He wasn't one of the apostles. But John was in that inner circle of the followers of Christ, and he saw things about Jesus that in his old age he knew he needed to communicate to unbelievers so that they could see the glory of Christ for themselves. So, who wrote the Gospel of John? We reason unto that from Scripture and history, that it was the Apostle John. Now, I want to give you a general overview of the structure of John, and this is really going to be the majority of the rest of our time. The first thing that I do when I start, I mean, it's hard for me to say this, as if I've been preaching for a super long time. A rule that I have adopted, uh, the first thing that I start to do whenever I'm going to enter into a book of the Bible and preach through the whole book, is I try to grapple with the book and get a, get a firm outline of the structure of the book in my mind. So if I can't just one-on-one -on -one spout out what the outline of the Gospel of John is to you, then I have not studied the Gospel of John enough to get up and preach it, right? Now, the Gospel of John has been a precious book to my soul for many years. Um, in fact, every season of quickening and awakening that I've ever experienced has begun by walking through the Gospel of John, where the Lord has renewed in me and rekindled in me a passion and a desire and inflamed my heart in a true worship of Jesus Christ for who he is. Because every time I come back to the gospel, I see something new about who Jesus is that I didn't quite realize before. Maybe I saw it, but I didn't realize the importance. Every single time I've come back to the gospel of John, the Lord has used it to, to rekindle that fire in my soul to serve and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I thought that I had a pretty good grasp on the outline of the Gospel of John until I started working through it in preparation to preach it. That's whenever I realized that outlining the Gospel of John is far more complicated than it seems. In fact, D.A. Carson wrote in the introduction of his commentary, and it, when I read it, it really resonated with me because I read it after I started trying to outline the book. He said, like so many other facets of the Gospel of John, its basic structure seems simple until one starts to think about it. Right? And that's really the beauty of how John has written his Gospel. It's representative of the wisdom that was poured into this Gospel through the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit that John could write something that seems so simple on the surface, so approachable, so adaptable to any sinner, no matter who they are, where they are, what they're going through, you can come to the Gospel of John and you can find yourself planted firmly within the context of what's happening. 
It's written so simply. It's the simplest Greek in the New Testament, right? And yet, as you dig into those simple explanations and depictions and, and, re, and, and retellings of the life of Christ, you find that it's far more deeper than what you realized on that surface level. There's, there's both an accessibility to this gospel, while at the same time, there's a measure in which it's closed off. And it takes work and labor to dig down into it. It's really a, a, a marvel. It's a wonder of, of literature, just in and of itself. Uh, even unbelievers acknowledge that. But. So D.A. Carson, like he said, it seems basic. The structure seems basic until you start thinking about it. Now, why is it important to discern the outline and structure of the Gospel of John? It's simply important because we, if we don't get a, a firm grasp on the outline and the structure of this Gospel, then we are in danger of missing the flow of John's thought as we walk through it. And then also, we are in danger of not seeing the connections that the Spirit of God wants us to make as we walk through this Gospel. Right? So you need to see how any one part fits into the picture of the whole if you're going to understand how it's functioning and God's intention in making it known to us. You still with me? I know this is a little academic, but hopefully it's not too dry. Yeah? Okay. All right. All right, so John makes very clear to us in John chapter 20, verse 30, that there were many other signs Jesus did which were not written in this book. Now, what that tells us is that John was very selective in what he chose to include in this book. And you could put it in the negative way, John was very selective about what he would choose not to include in this way, in this book. There were many other signs that Jesus did, but John chose not to include the vast majority of them. In fact, John didn't even include the majority of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke included in their gospel accounts. The, the Gospel of John, just as a, a stat, if you want to know this, if it interests you, a fact, the Gospel of John is 92% original when you compare it to the other three Gospels. That means that there's 92% of information in the Gospel of John that is not communicated in any one of the other three Gospels. Right? It's a very unique telling of our Lord's life and ministry. In fact, as we read John 21, verse 25, it makes clear that Jesus did so much that it would actually be seemingly impossible to write it all down, right? John there speaking in hyperbolic language, saying the world, I suppose the world itself couldn't contain all the books that would be written about everything that Jesus did. Now what that signals to us is that what the Holy Spirit has moved John to include in this work about Jesus is very important. If you're going to say that Jesus did far more than what I've communicated in this book, far more than what I would ever be able to tell you about, if you're going to say that and then say, but these things have been written for you, that tells us that the, these things that are included in this book are extremely important. They are things that John thought in his old age as he's now had 50 years to think back upon the ministry of Jesus and the importance of it and how all the signs that Jesus did interrelated with his teachings and what it was telling us about the purpose of his work and the glory of his being and what he was doing in the church. As John has thought through the entire life of Christ, he identifies these specific things as being the most important things that he wants to tell us about. You don't get that. 
When you are at the end of your life, things become far more clearer to you. Far clearer, more clearer. Thanks, James. I hear your voice in my head, brother, clearer. Not purposefully, but anyway. Oh, man, I don't mean to embarrass anybody. As you reach the end of your life, things ought to become clearer to you, right? Now, we live in a busy day. We live in a time when everything's so confused. We're all struggling to, to get our bearing, right? But when you come to the final stages of your life, you really want to focus on the things that are most important, right? It's like Paul writing 2 Timothy, the letter of 2 Timothy to, to Timothy, what is he focusing on in that letter? He's focusing on the things that are most important. The things that Paul, if he never has another chance to speak with Timothy, these are the things he wants him to remember. That's kind of what we're getting here with the Apostle John. If John, who knows he's getting old, all the other apostles have died off at this point. He knows his time's coming. He had no idea what the Lord had in store for him still, right? That's a good hope for those of you who are older. Your life's not over until you take your last breath. God's purposes for you aren't done until you pass out of this world. And even then, they're not done. Right. So, so take courage. But anyway, John is writing this gospel knowing that his time is drawing near. And what is it that he wants people to focus on once he has departed from this world? That's the product of the gospel of John. Now, as to the actual structure of the gospel... As you read through the gospel, you can pick up on the fact that John was not only very carefully, John not only very carefully decided what he was going to include in this gospel, but he was also very careful in choosing how he was going to arrange what he has included in this gospel. There's a very purposeful arrangement of the stories and the teachings of Jesus as it appears to us in the Gospel of John. Now, that makes some people uncomfortable. It makes it sound as though Jesus, or John took some scissors to the Gospel account and just kind of cut out what he wanted to include and left out other things that he deemed were not important. That's not exactly what was going on. What was going on was that the Spirit of God, 2 Peter 1.21, was moving John to write this Gospel in a certain way in order to accomplish a certain purpose. And in, in accomplishing that purpose, John structured the gospel in order to, to, to accomplish his end, right? So, he's not only described what happened, but he has arranged his account of what happened in a way that he believed would bring us as his readers into maximum exposure to Christ in his glory. Right? So, this is written for maximum effect, maximum impact, so that we would see Christ most clearly. All right, so as with any literary work, the Gospel of John has three basic parts. You have an introduction, you have a conclusion, and then everything in the middle belongs to the body, right? the body of the letter. Now, John chapter 1, and it seems to me that the entire chapter is functioning, John chapter 1, is functioning as a general introduction to the book. Most people would limit the introduction to verses 1 through 18. I believe that the entire chapter is functioning as an introduction to what John is communicating to us in the book. 
So there, you not only, we're not only introduced to the glory of Jesus Christ and his divine essence, right? The word, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it, not overpower it, comprehend it. We're going to talk about that. We're introduced to the glory of this person who became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, this, this one who is the same as God and yet distinct from God. We're introduced to Jesus Christ and his divine essence. And then we're introduced to the ministry of John the Baptist and the purpose of it. John came to be a witness to the glorious one who was coming after him so that all would believe in him. And then at the end of chapter 1, what do we have? We have the calling of the first disciples and in, and in that calling of the first disciples, we see the basic invitation that the gospel extends to every reader. We see that command or that, that invitation to come and see Christ for ourselves. That really serves, that, that point serves as like the thing that opens the door to the rest of the gospel for all of us. It's, it's as if John is pointing to these disciples and saying, listen, when Jesus came to them, he, they said, Lord, where are you staying? Jesus said, come and see. When the other apostle went and told the other ones about them, they said, well, wait, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he says, come and see. This is John's way of telling us, listen, I want you to come in and I want you to see what we saw when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to see his glory. So come, come with me and see. Right? That's why I identify the whole chapter as an introduction. Now, the conclusion of the book is really in John, John chapter 21. This caps off the presentation of Christ in his glory with the glory of the resurrection and his post-resurrection interaction with his failed disciples. And I can't wait to get to that chapter. There's so much hope in that chapter for those of us who know intimately how much we fail. Here Jesus comes to disciples who are downcast and trodden. They have denied and rejected the Holy One. The one whom God warned, if you don't listen to his voice, I will cut you off from my people. They did that. They didn't listen to his voice. They turned their back on him. And yet here Jesus comes and he gently approaches them saying, peace, peace be with you. And he recommissions them to take on the work of the gospel forward. Just a wonderful chap. We're going to get there. But really what that does, that, that call to the apostles and that call to Peter specifically in John 21, 22 that serves in a very similar way, similar way that Jesus' interactions with the disciples in the first chapter serves. So in the first chapter, it's this appeal, come and see Jesus. In the last chapter, there's this command, follow me. And John has positioned these two things at the beginning and at the end of his book to invite us in to see the glory of Jesus. And then once we've seen everything that he's written, we reach the end and John says, now go follow him. That's the command of this book. That's the thrust of what John is trying to drive at. He's trying to drive this into our hearts. you got to come see him, and then you got to follow him. And I love that. love his passion. So that's the introduction, and that's the conclusion of John. Now, everything that's in between, which is John chapter 2 to John chapter 20, this can be divided roughly into two major sections. Two halves. The first half we're going to call the, sign of, the signs of Jesus' glory. Okay? 
That's going to be the first half. That runs from John chapter 2 through John chapter 12. Now, other people refer to this as the book of signs. And the reason for that is because in this half of the Gospel of John, the main focus is on certain signs that Jesus did to communicate truth about who he is and what he was here to do. And the purpose of this, let me just throw this out there, the purpose of of bringing us in this first half of John to see these signs of Jesus is to get us to look through Christ's signs and teachings in order to see his glory. So these signs are positioned where they are and how they are within this first half of the book in order to facilitate a better comprehension of the glory of Jesus Christ that was revealed in his earthly ministry. That whole section covers three and a half years. So it's, it's very fast, moves rapidly, but it's, it's selective in what it has shown to us. Now within this section, John highlights primarily seven signs. John likes the number seven. You're gonna, you see that in the book of Revelation, but you see that here in the Gospel of John as well. In this first half, you see the first sign of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. You see the clearing of the temple in Jerusalem. That is a sign that was signifying who he is at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 4, you uh, see the healing of the Gentile centurion's son. And uh, then, chapter 5, you see the healing of the lame man in Jerusalem. Chapter 6, you see the feeding of the 5,000 in Galilee. Chapter um, 9, you see the healing of the man born blind. And then the climaxing sign that we all love to read about and remember, we see the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, which is serving as a foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection, but also demonstrating that Jesus Christ is in himself the resurrection. So these seven signs, that's what this first half of the gospel focuses on. Now John makes mention of other miracles. For example, in John 1.48, we learn of Jesus' omniscience, right? He saw one of the disciples sitting under the tree before he came and before the friend came and called him. In John chapter 6, verse 19, we see Jesus walking on water. That's a miracle, right? John mentions it here. But there's something unique about the way that these seven specific signs reveal Christ's glory, and that is what John wants us to focus on. He makes mention of other miracles, but it's these seven works of Jesus that is really communicating to us to some, something to us that is unique. All right, you guys still with me? I knew this was going to be a heavy one. I'm going to try not to ask that anymore. I want to believe that you are smart enough to follow me through this. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about my ability to present it. So, all right. So that's the first half. Now, this first half, chapter 2 through chapter 12, that can be further broken down into two halves. So that first half has two sections. The first segment runs from chapter 2 to chapter 4, and what marks the boundaries of that is the mention of Cana. So you have chapter 2 opens in Cana, chapter 4 closes in Cana. You have the first sign of Jesus performed in Cana. You have the third sign of Jesus performed in Cana. And there's an interval, there's something in between. Now, this section seems to emphasize, this chapter 2 to chapter 4, it seems to emphasize to us the glory of Christ's purpose in coming. It shows through Jesus' different miracles and teachings that Jesus entered into this world in order to bring new spiritual life 
to those who would receive him by faith. That is the emphasis of that first section, chapters 2 to chapter 4. And you see this in different ways. In John chapter 2, what does Jesus do with the water? The old, dirty water that was used for rites of purification of the Jews, what does he do with that water? He turns it into sweet, fresh wine that was better than the wine that they had at first. Now that's signaling to us something more than just an event that occurred at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus was communicating to his disciples that when he entered into this world, he did not enter into this world to reform that which was old. He entered into this world to take that which was old and make it new. And you see that again at the end of chapter 2 with the clearing of the temple, the second sign. What is Jesus doing in clearing the temple? What does he say to to the Pharisees who come up to him and say, by what authority are you doing this? Imagine someone coming in here and throwing over the tables and cracking people in the whip with the whip, driving, I mean, if we had animals, driving out the animals. Sorry, Spitzers. <laughs> Imagine just what that would seem like, right? Just so disruptive, so chaotic. Wait, that's not gracious. Jesus, you're whipping people. It's not very kind. What authority do you have to do something like this? Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. What temple was he talking about? He wasn't talking about the old temple. He was talking about the new temple, which has superseded all the functions of the old. All of them. So at the end of chapter 2, Jesus tells, I'm not only here to bring something new, I'm doing away with this old temple, and I'm establishing a new temple in me. Right? It's glorious. What do we have in chapter 3? We've got Jesus talking with Nicodemus. What is the emphasis there? What's old in Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus? What would be categorized as the old? Physical birth. Descendant from Abraham. Right? Belong to the people of Israel. And Jesus tells him what? Unless you're born again, not only can you not see the kingdom of heaven, but you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not about your first birth, Nicodemus. You must be born again. And you see in that Jesus bringing in, not just this, not just reforming the old line of Israel, but bringing in a new line, a new man, new people of God who are constituted in him, Jew and Gentile. We're going to look at that. We'll see that more clearly as we go along. John chapter 4, we have Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. And what do we have listed there? We have the old worship that was learned from the fathers In giving the way of worship that the Father was, um, excuse me, we have the old worship that was learned from the fathers, inherited from the fathers, being replaced by the kind of worship that the Heavenly Father is seeking. So it's not on this mountain or that mountain that you worship anymore. The time now is when the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, the new replacing the old. The old ways were divided. They were scattered. They were limited in their geographical scope. You had to be in this mountain or that mountain or this place or that place. But Jesus says to the woman at the well, it's no longer about that. It's about wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you are. It's about worshiping the Father with the full spirit in the truth. The new replacing the old. And then you have that last one in John 4, closing with the healing of the royal official's son. What is that signifying to us? 
That's signifying to us that the blessings of the Messiah were not coming for the Jewish people only, but they were also spreading to the Samaritans and even to the Gentiles. And you see that, right? John chapter 3, who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to a Jew. John chapter 4 opens up, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to a Samaritan. John chapter 4 closes, who is he talking to? He's talking to a Gentile. So it's that same flow of Acts 1.8, right? That you will be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, into Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. John has depicted that right here at the beginning of his gospel, signaling to us the purpose of Jesus' ministry and why he came. I need to keep, keep going here. Now, the second half of the book of signs, if you will, right, that runs from chapter 5 to chapter 12, that presents to us certain signs that are unveiling the glory of Christ's person. So chapter 2 to chapter 4, it's the glory of Christ's purpose. Chapter 5 to chapter 12, it's the glory of his person, right? In some way, these signs prove the divine nature of Jesus Christ and are buttressed with the famous I am statements, right? Signaling to us the inherent nature of Jesus. Who is he? He is the I am. John chapter 5, Jesus heals a sick man on the Sabbath. And that becomes the occasion for stating most clearly not only his divine nature, but also his equality with the Father, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? Well, my father's working until now, and I myself am working. Wait, wait, what? Not only you're claiming that God is your father and that you can do what your father is doing? Yes, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying, that he was God. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000. <laughs> And that becomes the occasion for him to explain that he is the living bread that the Father has sent down from heaven to give life to the world. Who but God can give life to the world? The living bread that we must spiritually eat if we're going to receive eternal life from the Father through him. John chapter 7 presents us with this, this, this chapter of massive confusion about who Jesus really is. Everyone's questioning, is he the prophet? Is he the Messiah? We don't know who he is. I thought he was the one that the Pharisees were wanting to kill. That gives way to John chapter 8, where Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. John 8, 58 gets even more explicit concerning his deity. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. In fact, it's in John 8, 24 that Jesus even goes so far as to say that unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, unless you believe that I am the one who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, unless you believe that I am the self-existent one, the one who has called a people for his own glory out of Egypt and has continued to maintain those people until now, unless you believe that all of that discussion of God in the Old Testament and every time anyone saw God and understood anything about God and looked at God and interacted with God, unless you believe that all of that was me, you are going to die in your sins. Very important. John 9, Jesus heals the man born blind, and that gives way, after receiving worship from that man, that gives way to John 10, where Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd, the one spoken of in Psalm 23. 
I am the door. And not one enters into the green pastures of eternal life without coming through me. John 11 is the final sign and in the first half of the book where Jesus proves that he is the Lord and giver of life, the very resurrection himself by raising Lazarus from the dead. Now there is overlap between these two segments, but generally speaking, these are what John is magnifying before our eyes in these two halves, the glory of Christ's purpose and the glory of Christ's person. That is what these signs are being pointed to to show us, all right? I really thought, I really, really thought that we were going to be done by 11.25 today. Um, all right, so chapter 12 serves as a transitional section that's bringing us out of the first half of the book and ushering us into the second half. It brings us to the end of the first half by closing this, this book of signs that are unveiling Christ's glory and moves us into the second half, which is addressing how we as his disciples are going to continue following Christ once he has returned to glory. So you've got the book of his glory, the signs of his glory in the first half, and then in the second half, you have instructions about how we as his disciples are going to continue following him now that he's gone back to glory. Chapter 13 brings us directly to Jesus' final night on earth with his disciples, and that runs through the end of chapter 17. The, the shock, the shocking element is clear in this section. Jesus has told them, it's time for me to leave. It's time for me to go back to the Father. And the disciples are confused, and they're saying, wait, I, I thought you were going to remain forever. And, and how can we continue following after you if you're going to go to the Father? Can we come with you? I'll come with you, Lord. Jesus says, no, you can't come with me right now. So what are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to continue following after Christ after his departure? Well, Jesus answers this in a number of ways. In John chapter 13, he answers that by telling them, you will follow after me after I've returned to the Father by resting in my sacrificial cleansing love and then loving one another in the same way. <coughs> chapter 14, you're going to follow me after I've returned to glory by not only believing in God, but also believing in me. Trusting that I, where I'm going, I am going to make a place for you. And I'm going to bring you there to be with me forever. John chapter 15, or even in 14, again, not only believing in him, but also continuing to follow him by keeping his commandments, right? obeying his commandments, what he taught us to do. John 15, we continue following after him by abiding in him, drawing spiritual life and nourishment from his word and teaching, loving one another, learning from his example, and even standing firm against the opposition of the world in faithful allegiance to him. That's how we're going to continue following Christ after he returns to glory. John 16, along with all of this, at the end of chapter 14, and especially in chapter 16, Jesus emphasizes the necessity of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives. That if we are going to be those who continue following after Christ once he has returned to glory, it is vital that we understand and recognize the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ if you are not presently and consciously walking with his Spirit. 
We're going to get to that. And I can't wait to get to that. But you've got to understand the Spirit of God is not some nebulous thing that we cannot discern or understand anything about. Jesus told us more fully in these chapters about the ministry of the Spirit than He did anywhere else in Scripture. Here is where we gain clarity and we gain understanding about what it means to have God's Spirit dwelling in us and what it means to walk with Him. We're going to get there. And then John 17. How do we continue following after Christ? On the basis of his priestly intercession. It's his prayer that keeps us. Just like he said to Peter, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. When you've been restored, go serve your brothers. Same here in John 17. The only reason why any of us are saved and are kept saved is because Jesus is interceding for us as our high priest. John 18 to 19, it opens the scene of the trial and the crucifixion of Christ. The, the, really the climax of the world's opposition to Christ, but also the ultimate revelation of Christ's glory and grace that has been revealed towards sinners. And then it's all capped off in John 20 with the glory of his resurrection. The ultimate sign that stands over all the other signs and backs up all of his teachings. How do we know that Jesus is the only begotten of God who has been revealed in the flesh? Well, by seeing the signs he did, hearing his teachings, but also recognizing the glory of his resurrection that makes all of it true. Or at least that proves all of it true. Now, that is the structure, the general overview of the Gospel of John. And I hope that what you're sensing in this is that John is very urgent to get us to see Jesus. And that is, in fact, the purpose for which he wrote the book. Why did John compose this gospel? Why focus our attention on these specific events? Why arrange and order them in this specific way? He gives us the answer in John 20, verse 31. That there were many other signs that Jesus did, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now that's pretty straightforward. He's not hiding his intentions here, and he's not unbiased or neutral in his historical presentation of Jesus. He is after something. He is seeking to accomplish something in the lives of his readers. He doesn't want them just to be neutral evaluators of what Jesus did in his life and ministry. He has written this in such a way as to spark faith in us, to see Jesus is the Son of God, and then to understand that the only viable option of response after seeing and recognizing that He is God's Son is to follow Him, to believe in Him, to trust in Him, to obey Him, to abide in Him, to love Him, to serve Him. And that's it. That's the purpose that John's driving at here. Really, what John is doing in this book is he is simply unpacking John chapter 1, verse 14 for us. It says, the word became flesh and what? Don't read it. We memorized it already. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen, we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. If we were to ask John, John, what, what do you mean you saw his glory? 
What do you mean that when you saw his glory, you recognized that it was presenting him as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth? What, what does that mean, John? Well, the gospel that he's written is his answer. It's his response to that question. What does it mean to see his glory as of the only begotten of the Father? That is presented to us throughout the rest of the gospel of John. As we're closing, the, the gospel was written to usher its readers into these various scenes where Christ has demonstrated the kind of glory that can only belong to the one who is the only begotten. Now let me close by emphasizing that this is not only written to inform us of these things. This gospel was written to thrust these things upon us and bring us into, I'll use this word again, a direct confrontation with Christ himself. Where we are confronted with the reality of who he is. And we are confronted with the reality of what he demands. And we're left then with the question, how will we, how will we respond? This is John 1, 12 through 13. He came to his own, his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Right? Our, how, how do we, the question that's going to, to haunt us as we walk through this gospel, and this is both for believer and for unbeliever in this room. The question that's going to haunt us as we walk through this gospel is, am I receiving Jesus as he has presented himself to me? Am I receiving his glory? Am I walking in his light? Right. That's John 6, 40. This is the will of my Father, that all who behold the Son and believe will have eternal life. That's our, that's our aim. We want to behold the Son. But we want to behold Him in such a way that we believe in Him. Now, there's one more thing that I want to close on as far as a purpose of this gospel. And I just want, I'm going to have to skim through this. I want you to take it home and meditate on it. What this gospel shows us also is God's love and His willingness to receive any and all who come to Him. That's precious to me because I doubt God's love for me so much. What we see in this gospel, even John 5, 34 stands out where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, the Jews who are opposing him. And he's telling them about the witness of John and what the father's testimony is concerning Christ. And he comes to the end of that verse and he says, I say these things to you so that you may be saved. Who's he talking to? Those who are going to put him on a cross. And yet he's here speaking to them with an eager desire to see them saved. John 3, 16 through 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but rather that the world might be saved through him. I don't know your perspective of God. 
I don't know your initial thinking about God whenever you approach him in prayer, when you come to him in your word, in, in his word. But what we learn from the Gospel of John is that the Father always has a fatherly disposition, a loving disposition towards those who come to him. You can be absolutely confident of that. And we're going to see that more fully unpacked as we walk through the rest of the Gospel. Um, why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and uh, to help us prepare our hearts as we come to his table. Father, we, we love your word, and we love when we can see the clear message and implications of what you've given us in the Bible. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you that the word became flesh and that he dwelt among us, giving us that opportunity to see him, to know the one who has always held us in being and yet in our sin, we did not recognize him and we did not know him. In love, you sent your son to show us who he is or to show us his glory so that we might believe in him. God, I pray that believer and unbeliever alike in this room would now come to the point where we willingly lay our hearts down before you in loving trust and obedience to this glorious one that you've revealed to us. Father, your love ought to compel us. Your grace and your love is what sent Christ to us. I pray we would not receive that grace in vain. Help us now, Lord, as we prepare to come celebrate this gift that you've given us in your son at, at, at the table. May we have sweet fellowship and communion with you and with one another as we lift high our one hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray in his name. Amen. One thing that we see in this gospel is that the father has chosen to bear witness to us about his son through these various signs that he did. You know, Jesus said in John 5, um, oh, I flipped the page, wrong page. The witness I have is greater than the witness of John for the works which the father has given me to finish. The very works that I do, they bear witness about me that the father has sent me. Now, in his life and ministry, he was showing us the signs that prove the Father sent him. In his death, he gave us the greatest sign of the Father's love and devotion to us. And no greater love does anyone have than that he lay his life down for his friends. Right? Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we, are yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This table represents the greatest sign of God's love and devotion and his willingness to be forgiving of us than any other sign that's ever been performed. Jesus laid his life down to show that we can come readily to the we can come right now to the Father and find him eager and ready to forgive.